For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Malia Chavez, the newly appointed CEO of the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. In 2010, 14-year-old Bianca Vivian became the youngest reporter in the history of NPR. Now an accomplished journalist, author, and producer, Vivian talks about her new television series, Generational Anxiety. And take a journey deep into the 100-acre wood to meet up with some of the cast of Winnie the Pooh, the new Scoundrel and Scamp Theater production for all ages. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This time of year is always a demanding one for community food banks across the country, and our local nonprofit is no exception. This holiday season, the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona's struggle to provide for others is impacted by record inflation, the lingering impact of COVID, a compromised supply chain, and scarcity of some food staples. Next, Tony Paniagua introduces us to the new Chief Executive Officer at the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona, which operates in several counties and served more than 300,000 residents in 2021. Malia Chavez, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You moved here from San Francisco, but you had a previous connection to Southern Arizona. Can you tell us about that, please? Absolutely. So my family moved to Tucson in 1985. Uh, my mom is originally from San Francisco, California, and I was born there as well. And she was doing work uh, organizing within the labor movement and came to Arizona to cover the Phelps Dodge strike that was happening in Marinci, Arizona, and met my stepdad, who is from Clifton, Arizona, and was one of the strikers. And they fell in love. They got married, and we actually ended up moving to Tucson. And a year later, they had my sister. She's born and raised here in Tucson. And I spent most of my childhood here. Went to Maxwell for middle school, went to Choya, gay chargers, uh, for high school. And then I moved away in 95 to go to ASU for undergrad. And then I left in 99 to return back to San Francisco to go to law school and really was motivated to move back. My stepdad is still here. And my mom had been living with us in San Francisco for many years and was really ready and wanting to move back. So yeah, here I am. And you say you are very excited to take on this new job at the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Absolutely. I feel very honored and very excited to be in this leadership role. Um, I've been connected with not only food security issues, but the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona specifically most of my life. My mom was a social worker here in Tucson for many years, oftentimes um, worked very closely with them. A lot of her clients and participants were recipients of the food pantry and food boxes. I would go with her on deliveries. And in really tough times, and when my mom became a single parent to two kids, we also benefited from the services of the community food bank. And so this is definitely part of my life's purpose and focus. So this is just a really wonderful opportunity for me to give back to the community and hopefully with some lived experience to be able to bring 
a little bit of that knowledge and skill to the table. Let's talk about the food need or food insecurity here in Southeast Arizona, the communities that are served by the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. How many people are we talking about? Uh, How many pounds of food? It's about 63 million pounds of food um, last year. And we did see that stabilize a little bit right at the beginning of this year. Um, But we have since seen an increase of about 20% just in this new fiscal year. Um, which is showing us that the demand is getting high again, um, just as it was during COVID with the high cost of food and just supply chain issues and everything else that we've all experienced. It is definitely driving an increase in the need. And that high cost of food at this point also means that we are, our dollar isn't going as far as it used to. And so in order to maintain and be able to continue to provide what now people have really come to rely on, it's costing us more in all resources. And how important are volunteers for the organization? They are critical for us. And we did take a major hit during COVID for very obvious reasons. And it has been kind of a slow recovery to bring enough volunteers in now to meet the growing demand. So If people are interested in volunteering, we would love it. You can support us in so many ways, including participating in some of our education programs. Um, Also shopping at our local farmer's market. It serves our local economy as well by supporting local farmers and and even our our city farmers who are growing in small quantities and participating in co-op models. Malia, how does Tucson's food program stand out, if if it does, uh, compared to other cities around the country? It definitely does. We are very innovative and creative. It's definitely a different model than than I've seen in many other places. And the fact that we are also invested in the farming aspect, the local sourcing, and making sure that there is this huge education component is done in a way that I have not seen replicated in other food banks that I've worked with. Moving forward for 2023, what are some of your goals, uh, your aspirations for the organization? The main focus right now is to make sure that we are in fact getting enough food out to the community. That's a big focus of ours. And then also in our, because our reach is so large and because we cover such a huge region, making sure that there is an equitable allocation and some sort of baseline and expectation across the entire region that people can show up to any of our partner agencies or any of the food banks and know that they're going to be able to get the same thing that they would get when they come to the main office here on Country Club. That's a huge goal of mine. And then increasing what we can access as far as consistent proteins. Those are huge. And fulfilling this goal that we have with fresh produce and fruit and vegetables. Those are the main goals for the next year. And this is all a really important and heavy topic, but let's get a little bit light here. Sure. What would you like to do for fun? Why are you happy to be back in Southern Arizona? I love to garden. (laughs) I love being in the desert, going for walks. Um, The night sky will never, ever get old. And just being back in Arizona in general, there's so much to do. I think my friends are always surprised when I send pictures of me in the snow on Mount Lemmon versus, you know, riding around in the desert and taking pictures next to cacti. So 
it, there's just such a wide range of outdoor activities that you can do and that I love. And also just because I have a great deal of family here and it really feels like home and there's nothing that can replace that. Okay, Malia Chavez, she is the new CEO for the Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Through December 26th, you can make donations of non-perishable food or money to the Community Food Bank while visiting the Winter Haven Festival of Lights, which is open from 6 to 10 p.m. each day. If you need assistance or would like to provide assistance to the food bank, you can get in touch at communityfoodbank.org. Generational anxiety isn't just something that many people experience. It is also the title of a new television series. The show was created by a name that may be familiar to longtime NPR listeners, as we'll hear next. Interviewer Adiba Nelson is an outside contributor to this show, and her opinions do not reflect those of Arizona public media. I'm Adiba Nelson, and this is The Word. Next, I'll be speaking with Bianca Vivian Brooks writer, artist, and producer extraordinaire. Bianca was the youngest national public radio correspondent at 14 years old, writing weekly commentaries for All Things Considered. At 16, she was chosen to head NPR's youth news desk at the 2012 Democratic National Convention, and at 17, she became the youngest journalist nominated for the California Journalism Award for Excellence in Radio Reporting. When she was 18, she became the youngest opinion writer for the New York Times, and after receiving her Bachelor of Arts from Columbia University, she went on to serve as the New York Times and CNN commentator on the 2020 Democratic presidential debates. If it sounds like she's done a lot, it's because she has, and she is not slowing down anytime soon. I had the opportunity to speak with Bianca about her new show on All Arts TV called Generational Anxiety, a show where she pairs established artists with up-and-coming artists, and they get to discuss their varied takes on the world. Bianca, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Adiba. I was doing a little bit of digging online, and I came across your website, which is very global. You seem to be everywhere. The entire world is your hood. Where did that come from for you? I would say my mother, she just, for both myself and my sisters, I have two sisters and my brother, she didn't really close us off to the world. So when I was 14, I had an opportunity working with the U.S. um, Department of Cultural and Educational Affairs to go to Bangladesh for two months to study climate change. Um, and fast fashion and sweatshops, which are a huge thing over there. And so I think that being the first time I really left the country and that being the way that I got a passport, it opened me to a completely different world. Like Bangladesh, it's not a tourist destination. And I think that that really stoked my curiosity to be like, okay, what else is this world? Not sort of hiding, but what else is there for me to experience? And that led me to so many other places in the globe and really built a love of people for me. Would you say that's kind of what opened the door for you starting this new show that you have coming out called Generational Anxiety? Generational Anxiety is a show where we take older artists, that can mean filmmakers, poets, dancers, directors, what have you, and put them in conversation with their Gen Z and millennial counterparts. 
to talk about the state of the world and the state of art and culture. And I think that that was really one, yes, definitely birthed from a love of people that I've had my whole life and curiosity about different people. But it was also growing up around different generations of artists. My grandfather was a jazz musician. My mother is a playwright um, and an actress in her own right. My younger sister is a dancer. My older sister is a singer. And just being surrounded by this sort of intergenerational artistry is really what birthed the idea for the show of understanding that there's so much to offer um, from a multitude of ages and, and different kinds of genres of artistry. So I think that a lot of the life experience I had as, a, as an adolescent and working early, all of that came together and is reflected in the show that we've created. I got to work with some of my all-time favorite artists. The first episode, we had the legendary American poet Nikki Giovanni paired with the New Yorker columnist and cultural critic Doreen St. Felix. And we came together to talk about love in the digital age and love as a, as a revolutionary and radical responsibility, love as something transformative. So that I'm super excited about. We have Joseph Rodriguez, the famous documentary photographer who created some of the most iconic portraits of Spanish Harlem and shot the gangs of East L.A. in the 80s and 90s. For the finale episode, we have Grammy Award-winning jazz musician Esperanza Spalding paired up with a really great up-and-coming drummer, Savannah Harris. So all across different genres, all across different generations, we have a lot of really, really great artists, both known and upcoming. So I'm really excited for people to see it. Now let me ask you, how did you decide who to pair with whom? I talked to a lot of young artists, right? And I, and I had a lot of people that were sort of on my mind for the show. But I found that the criteria really didn't even come down to talent as much as people that are comfortable kind of talking off the cuff about their ideas. What I realized is that I would sort of think of certain people that could do the show. And then when I would talk to them or go to see them speak, I realized like some artists can be very insular. Like they're very much like sort of brooding genius in a corner. Mm -hmm. They're not comfortable talking about ideas off the cuff. And we talk about you know, love and radical responsibility, manhood, home, climate change, big ideas that required the kinds of people that you could just give them a topic and they could rift with it. And that's a very specific kind of, of mind and very specific kind of artist. And that's what I love about the guests that were chosen. Um, similarly, another criteria is that they had to have a developed body of work, which is very difficult when choosing young artists to pair with older artists because these older artists, their icons, their legends, you know, mm -hmm. Joseph Rodriguez has thousands, tens of thousands of photos, maybe more. Um, Nikki Giovanni obviously has an entire body of work. She basically has her own genre right. of poetry. And so when you choose a young artist, you're basically saying, I'm willing to have these people compared. In the perfect world, in your dream world, who would be your fantasy guests to pair up? It's not even difficult for me. It would be <laughs> me uh -huh. and Toni Morrison oh. and like a young Intozake Shange who yes. wrote for Colored Girls yep. Yep. or a young June Jordan. Like oh. if I had to do my fantasy lineup, it would be like a, one of the young like radical beat poets of the 70s or like feminist playwrights and Toni Morrison. In fact, Toni Morrison was on my list as the second episode 
um, on an episode about self. And so while I was producing and creating the show for her to pass away, it was one of those very, very hard moments as an artist for me because so much of my of my writing and my work had been inspired by her so that's my dream legendary lineup and i'll I'll hopefully see it happen in heaven rest in power rest in power Mm -hmm. um how can our listeners find all arts tv to watch generational anxiety so you can actually stream it on allarts.com there's an all arts app you can add the all arts app on your roku and if there, if any of the listeners are in New York, then you can catch it 8 p.m. New York local time every Tuesday. Adiba Nelson talked with journalist, author, and producer Bianca Vivian. There are links to find out more about both of them on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. The story of Winnie the Pooh began in 1926 from the imagination of author A.A. Milne and illustrator E.H. Shepard. Although the Disney version is now the most popular, there have been many different interpretations over the intervening 96 years. Tucson's Scoundrel and Scamp Theater is inviting all ages to come and visit the Hundred Acre Wood in person and meet Pooh, Piglet, Eeyore, and all their woodland friends. Winnie the Pooh is a new adaptation written by Betsy Labiner and Raleigh Martinez. I got to fulfill a longtime wish to meet my childhood heroes last week when I visited Scoundrel and Scamp Theater and sat on stage with the director and the cast who were in full costume and makeup. Please introduce yourself for me. Hi, my name is Dawn McMillan and I'm the director of Winnie the Pooh. And I'm Tyler Gastelum and I'm playing Pooh. When I look back, I realized that there are very heavy themes that are in Winnie the Pooh. All kinds of fears are played on, getting lost in the woods, being washed away in the flood, being blown away in the blustery day. And I don't know how many of these elements you have in your production, but I think a key thing about the films is that Pooh is revealed to be a stuffed animal at the beginning. He actually tears his bridges and he sews himself back together. And I think they put that right up front so that kids understand this isn't a real bear. And so I just wonder if anything like that comes into play in this production where you want to assuage the fears of the children, but yet at the same time create this playground where you can explore all these heavy uh, adult themes. That's a really beautiful question. And part of the gift really is from the way that the playwrights integrated the Christopher and the Robin characters into the story. So we have the human characters who are having this evolution of facing something very scary. And our Hundred Acre Wood friends come together to help them learn to face their fears piece by piece, increment by increment. And so we have this the real world and the Hundred Acre Wood. And by the end of the play, the courage and the friendship of everyone helps all of the characters face their fears and be ready to brave out into the next adventure. What's really cool about what our playwrights have done is we have um, the Christopher Robin character is two separate individuals, Chris and Robin. And as the readers of the Hundred Acre Wood stories, they are putting themselves into the stories and imagining that they're going on these adventures. So 
the playwrights have come up with some really clever ways to show the audience, like you mentioned, Pooh ripping his britches to show that he's imaginary. They show our audience of this piece as well, that Chris and Robin are imagining these stories and through these imagined experiences, reading these stories and living vicariously, they can learn these important lessons. And I think it's a really beautiful tribute to just everybody who loves stories and who has had that similar experience learning that way. Well, right now, as I'm talking to you, you're in full costume and makeup. Mm -hmm. Have you actually interacted with any children like this yet? Yes, yes, I have. Uh, We did an awesome event at the Children's Museum, their Art After Dark event. We got to perform two scenes and uh, interact with a lot of the audience members there, a variety of ages, take some fun pictures with kids, and that was a great time. Was it natural for the children to want to touch you? Did, did you get hugs? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because <laughs> I want to hug you. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. I work as an elementary school teacher, actually, during the days. And one thing I'm very used to is that children don't often have the same physical boundaries that adults may have. <laughs> they love to touch and they love to explore. That's how they learn. But I like that because it shows that they're engaged in what we're doing. They're interested and they, they, want, to, they want to know more about this world. So it, it was a great thing, honestly. Yeah, it was so cute to see these eyes get all big. It was the first time we'd been out with with the cast. So we ha- we haven't done this play anywhere before because it's the world premiere. So to see these tiny little people, their eyes get all big and them just wanting to reach out and be a part of it. And I think back to, you know, my kids grew up with with Pooh and to see like the magic of Pooh being just transmitted from generation to generation and to see it happen in front of my own eyes, it was really beautiful. What do you think you learned from sharing the Winnie the Pooh stories with your children that you're now putting into practice here at Scoundrel and Scam? It's kind of a complicated question because I'm also a psychotherapist by day. Okay. And so one of the things that I, I keyed into very early on with the Pooh stories really is about how they're these archetypal characters. Each one of them has a sort of characteristic Um, orientation that we can recognize in our friends, especially those who are struggling with various mood disorders or mental illnesses. And so to have these stories where you can say, you know what? Yeah, Eeyore's clinically depressed and his friends still love him. Piglet is anxious and there's still a place for him. And so having this idea of watching these stories come to life within my kids' imaginations and how being able to reflect back on, oh, well, this reminds me of that, like you were saying, the the flood or these events and that everyone is still okay by the end of them and everyone belongs. I think that's the most important part. I'm Samantha Severson and I am playing Eeyore. And I'm Abigail Dunscombe, and I'm playing Owl. A point that your director just made, which has been analyzed many times, is how the different animals in the 100-acre wood represent different personality types. So as Owl, uh, what was it like to take on this persona? And do you feel that it's one that you can really relate to in your day-to-day life? Owl has a lot of arguably, depending on who you ask, neurodivergent tendencies and loves to info dump as a way of showing that they care and likes to hyperfixate on learning a lot of really interesting things and keeps those things in his head as opposed to the practical ones that might better serve the creatures of the hundred acre wood who just kinda of look at him like, huh? So I lecture a little like a professor and get interrupted a lot, but it's done with love. <laughs> Um, Now, when you say that you lecture a lot, do you mean the character Owl or do you mean you yourself? Both tend to happen accidentally, but more Owl, hopefully. (laughs) Now I'm talking to Eeyore. 
what do you have to say about what you've learned about yourself and about being a glass half empty person like I think Eeyore is? Eeyore was my favorite character. Getting to portray this character at this point in my life when I have struggled with my own depression for so long and I feel I've come to the other side of that and now getting to go back and not make fun of it, but to kind of poke fun at myself, not at the mental illness, depression. Um, It's so gratifying to know that people are going to enjoy seeing Eeyore the way that I enjoy seeing Eeyore. There are times where I have to remind myself what Eeyore is really all about. Um, There's so much joy in this show that when you're on stage, it's contagious. And so it's, it's so, it's so hard to remember that, you know, Eeyore is like dour, but really the most fun as everyone else. Yeah. Do you happen to have any scenes together? Is there any dialogue that the two of you could do right now? You're probably two of the most disparate characters. Mm-hmm. We are, and yet we end up kind of in a lot of little vignettes together, like the teaching words about being sad and mm-hmm. depression. That one's fun, but it's completely nonverbal. Oh. Right. Hit me with that butter line. <laughs> Butter really is the optimal counteragent to honey. You see, due to its being a semi-solid emulsion, which melts down easily. If and... that's it, am I a semi-solid emulsion? That's hardly the only aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, the process of turning cream into butter actually dates back to... And then we get interrupted by Kanga, because of course I'm going off on another tangent. <laughs> My name is Tanisha Ray, and I'm playing Kanga. Carlisle Ellis, I'm playing Rabbit. When I was auditioning for this, I just started thinking about what the animal rabbits are like. They're they're sort of the ultimate prey. Oddly enough, I had like four or five rabbits who were hanging out in my yard at the time, so I was able to watch them. They're just on alert all the time. They have to be very aware of their environment and very self-protective. I have all that in myself, of course. (laughs) (laughs) So I think of Kanga as unconditional love. Mm -hmm. She's the character that all the other characters can always turn to. I feel for her that she's an embodiment of love. And I even noticed while playing her that my interactions with other people have started to change. Um, She isn't the one in the spotlight, and that's not her role, and she's very comfortable with that. For me, when I play her, I think of, I just want other people to be safe and happy and to give the best of themselves and to create a space for them to do that. And for me, I do, I absolutely agree. She, to me, she is love. And that's how um, she's, ab- she's absolutely changed my life playing this character. The Scoundrel and Scamp's original adaptation of some of A.A. Milne's most beloved stories will be performed through December 11th with music by Kevin Hamilton of Southwest Soul Circuit. Scoundrel and Scamp is located in the historic Y near the corner of University and 4th Avenue. There's also a strong rumor from the Hundred Acre Wood that the show will return in the spring after Pooh has awakened from his long winter nap. There are many photos of the cast on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. Our news director is Christopher Conover. 
Music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.